0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: Okay, what I think's happening now is I think the pulpit's getting moved aside and the drum set's going to be in the middle. Because it is so much now about worship.
0: Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined by my friend Dr. James Dalzell, and we are delighted to have as our guest a singer and songwriter who has recorded over 31 albums of music, 4 million albums sold in total, all kinds of a number one hits. He's hosted a radio program, he's a graduate of Western Kentucky University, has an honorary doctorate from Cairn University and when not touring, lives in Franklin, Tennessee with his wife, Susan. So, Michael Card, thank you for joining us today to talk about music and the Bible.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, let me just start with a general question. What role does music play in the scriptures? We know in churches, it's a subject of debate and a sort of subject about which people feel very passionately. What about in the Bible?
1: Yeah, it divides a lot of people in the church today, I think. Well, from, it does. from, from the, the beginning, when I, was, when I got started... Uh, I couldn't play in my church because the guitar was demonic and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's it's always divide it's always been a to my knowledge, it doesn't divide anybody in the scriptures. Pete I don't remember anybody arguing about style in and, and music in the That's Bible. Yeah. yeah, I never I never thought of that. But
0: it does play a key role at key moments.
1: Oh absolutely. Well, Socrates says when the soul hears music it lets down its best guard. And I think what happens with music is becomes a vehicle. I think it's largely overrated. I think musical giftedness is way overrated in the church. I mean, it's nothing next to hospitality or compassion or something like that. But we put musicians, you know, on a pedestal, just like we put great speakers on a pedestal. And that's just one gift. But I think music is a way to engage the bridge between your heart and your mind, which is your imagination. I think that's what makes it so powerful. And my mentor, Bill Lane, would always say theology was always sung before it was put in in like a concrete form you'd always sing it first i don't know if that's true or not but it's a cool it's a cool quote
2: i actually think that is true i think of my students probably a lot of the theological assumptions they bring into my classroom are ones that were sort of built
1: into them through the music of the church Ah, well it music bypasses something i mean i think That's the danger of music. If you can make people sing something, you can make them believe it. Hmm. Even if it's, I mean, Hitler, they had all kinds of songs, right? The Nazis had all kinds of songs. Well,
2: you mentioned William Lane, and maybe some of our listeners uh, know him as really a great commentator on the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fabulous commentary on Mark, two volumes on Hebrews, his little book, Call to Commitment. Maybe you could say something just briefly about William Lane as a Bible scholar. When people think Christian musician, Mm -hmm. they they don't ordinarily draw a close connection to a world-class Bible scholar like William Blaine was. What role did he and his his seriousness about the scriptures play in your formation and how you thought about what you would do with music?
1: Yeah, okay. Well, when I first came to Western, I was Western Kentucky, I was a, a, a forestry major. I wanted a job that didn't involve people, so I wanted to be a forest ranger. And I took one of Bill's classes, and he walked in, and he sat on the desk, and he said, my name is William Lane. There's only one thing you need to know about me. I'm a man under authority, the authority of God's word. And it completely blew me away. And so from that point on, I took every class he taught except one. I didn't, did not a Dead Sea Scrolls class that I couldn't take. Uh, I had a conflict. But I saw how much he loved the Bible. He had great information. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, great information. But I just saw this brilliant guy who was so excited about the Bible. And I just said, I want, I want to be that guy. I want to be like him had nothing to do with music. And then so I became a student and, you know, on it goes. And then one day he asked me to write a song. So I would have never written music if it wasn't for Dr. Lane. Most or a lot of people just want to clone themselves. Bill didn't want to make a clone of himself. Of course, I could have never been like Bill anyway. I don't have that kind of a brain. But he he could always find out what your gifts were and encourage that. So he says, I think you have a gift for music because I did play. But music is, was, you know, in my world, was just to attract girls with, right? In college, you play the guitar, <laughs> the students center to attract girls. It didn't have a higher purpose in mind, but Bill, Bill understood something I didn't understand.
0: So you've talked about yourself as, as almost wanting to be a Bible teacher at a certain point, and even yep. maybe today. So should that be the posture of Christian musicians? I mean, if you're, if you're a musician that God has gifted with musical ability, should you basically almost think of yourself more as a teacher of the Bible or a theologian than a musician? Or how does that work? How would you put those two things together? Well,
1: I don't think, I don't want to put a burden on all of people that they have to become, you know, academic and scholarly and that sort of thing, because I don't think God calls everybody to that, because I don't want, I just want to clone me, because that's kind of what I've tried to do. But I think, and this is and this is Bill Lane, Bill would say worship is always a response to the Word. It's always a response. The Word always comes first. And then you respond. And that's the idea that I promote when I talk to young musicians. You know, engage with the word. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, he has ears to hear, let him hear, he means engage, because he's not going to explain it to you. You've got to engage. And uh, I think they tend to become very excited about that idea. I think that's a good point. We often,
2: some of us, we begin our church service with a call to worship, and so that there is this dialogical principle yep. where – We don't come with a thesis of our own to give to God. Mm -hmm. Uh, He comes with an authoritative revelation to give to us. Mm -hmm. And our our words are but faith's response and appeal to his words. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that's how a song should be written, not just sung.
1: Yeah, and when I did this with with Bill for six years in this little church where we were in in Bowling Green, and we we had the uh, sermon first, and then we would sing. And a lot of times we had songs that were about the sermon. So we would literally respond and almost kind of sing back what he had just preached. And it, was, it lasted for six, seven years, and it was glorious. But in, in our churches, what do we do? We sing, and then the guy gets up and preaches. And I think we've got
2: to, yeah, there's, it. Yeah, and maybe it creates a disjunction in our mind that the singing is a kind of thing that can be sealed up on its own. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes we'll even say, after the worship. yes. Then there will be the preaching,
1: or yeah. we talk like that. But well, and I think that's changing. I mean, what does the Reformation do? Reformation takes the altar, moves it aside, and puts the pulpit in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I think is happening now is I think the pulpit's getting moved aside, and the drum set's going to be in the middle because it is so much now about worship. I mean, almost worshiping worship sometimes. I think there's an over. I get, I say there's an over focus on the musical giftedness that is way out of proportion in the church now. For the first time now, I see on, on Facebook. On Monday, people are posting pictures of the worship service like it was a big concert. You know, maybe I'm just getting old, but I'm becoming my father, but that makes no sense to me anymore. Well, you know, it it sounds
0: like in a lot of these cases, they're using music as a kind of way to generate emotion, and then maybe that prepares you for hearing something. Authoritative word. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then that's going to naturally lead to an elevation of the musical gift as a way to generate this kind of emotion. Yeah.
1: And you know, think back to the Old Testament. You don't see that in the Old Testament, right? I'm trying to think like that. When Solomon dedicates the temple, they have all kinds of music, every kind of music you can you can think of. And Solomon does his prayer. I don't I don't know if you call that a sermon or not, but there doesn't seem to be any conflict between them what they're doing. And right. in temple worship, they had music going on. I think periodically, two, three or four times a day, this almost symphonic music would play in the temple. So it was woven into into their service. I mean, we see Jesus singing one time, but I think he sang a lot more than that. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In your own songwriting, as a response to the word of God, you've touched on a number of themes. I'm thinking maybe the last time we had a long conversation, you were, you were talking a lot about slavery mm-hmm. and some of the things that are involved with that, some of the resonances for our own day, but then some of the significance of it in the New Testament. So how have those things come about? I mean, have these just been things you've been studying in your own personal time with the Bible and yeah. then these, is that it sort of naturally become a part of your music?
1: Well, it started really with Bill giving me his sermons. So I started with this great content. The very first song I wrote for him was based on the Second Miraculous Catch of Fish in John 21. He gave me this sermon. And so I write this song about the Second Miraculous Catch of Fish. And so for six years, not every Sunday, but frequently, he'd give me a sermon. I'd write a little chorus. Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. And then after he died, I just kind of kept doing that, I would, except I would do the. Studying myself I do my own homework He was doing my homework For me before So
0: Have you ever had Occasions where The writing of the music Has actually given you A greater insight Or a sort of Different angle yeah. On whatever it was That you're studying
1: Oh yeah All the time
0: what, Can Can you give an example Or two of that Because well, I think that happens Right when we sing hymns It sort of brings home Truths that we know Right um, In a different way
1: Well and it happens When you write a sermon I mean in the process of You know Integrating it And condensing it You just see things That you've never seen before And, uh, yeah, songs happen like that a lot because the form, it forces you into three minutes, three and a half minutes, three verses and a chorus and maybe a bridge.
0: One of the blessings of this podcast is we're able to do it in my office and we're able to do it kind of on our own schedule. But one of the downsides of that is sometimes we have minor equipment failures. And, uh, we had one of those when we were interviewing Michael Card, uh, We're reflecting on that conversation, and when we went back to listen to it, we realized that, in fact, the last few minutes got cut off. So what James and I want to do now is try to re-remember.
2: We we are the consolation prize for the grand finality that was Michael Card. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly. We're going to try to maybe get some of his music to cut in at the end so that you can have at least some (laughs) Michael Card here, but instead you're stuck with us. I want to just say a couple things, though, before we even get to what was missed or what was left out. What a great conversation in the sense that he is someone who is deeply, deeply committed to the scriptures and to music serving the greater goal of making scriptural truth clear.
2: To be honest, that was, I think, the first thing that drew me to his music 20 plus years ago. It wasn't that it was my favorite style necessarily, though I can certainly I can certainly enjoy it and and appreciate it. It was that it wasn't kitschy. It was substantive in terms of biblical content. It seemed like it was researched. I was a college student. I was looking for something that wasn't. I was looking for something a little more serious and not at that point overly sentimental. And what I found in his and a lot of popular Christian music can be that way. Right and. Michael Card's music struck me as intentional, deliberate, focusing on grand themes of redemption, both in the Old and New Testament. It was a, it was a biblically literate contemporary Christian music. And the other thing I would say is the, the style was suited to the words. So there is mm-hmm. actually an awareness of how content and form reinforce each other.
0: Yeah, and that came out, and all of that is very intentional on his part, because what was clear was when we... When we probed a little more deeply, or you actually asked, I think, most of the questions, probed a little more deeply into the idea of the relationship between someone who is leading in music and singing and who's musically gifted in that way, and then the pastor of the church, if those are two different people, um, he had some really perceptive comments that again reinforce this idea of the centrality of the scriptures and the centrality of right theology. So the
2: question I had for him, which was sort of two-pronged, and he somewhat addressed it when describing his relationship with the great biblical scholar William Lane, was the question of, on the one side, what can or should musicians or the musically gifted do if they want to use their art and their craft for the promotion of the worship of God in song, and how can they do that better. I think he's shown us how, but what obligation or what can they do to improve the quality and the significance of that? The other side of that exact same question was, and what role can the pastor, who maybe is or is not musically gifted, um, what, what role should he have in crafting current hymns and songs and spiritual songs for the church and i was thinking kind of what lay in the background we've often recognized that the church is so much shaped and formed by what it sings and with even with my students as i was mentioning we get the theological assumptions they bring into the classroom are often the ones that they have learned and imbibed through the Corporate singing of the church. Yeah. And so there does seem to be a sense in which the pastor who has a charge and the elders who have a charge to watch and keep watch and guard over the flock with regard to its worship comprehensively, what role or obligation can they play and do they have toward contributing to the current production of music? And I was thinking of Ambrose of Milan, mm-hmm. the pastor for a short while of Augustine uh, and his mother, Monica. And that was just at the time when, end of the 4th century, there's great Trinitarian controversy, and Ambrose undertakes to write all of these magnificent Trinitarian hymns that are really meant to not show off his skill at at hymn writing, though it is actually quite impressive, but to really steep the minds and hearts of his people in really deep and important biblical and Christian truth. And it was really a, des- it was a theological, it was beautiful music and well done. We still sing some of these hymns today, but it was really designed with a theological goal of protecting his people through good substantive music.
0: Well, it can work the other way too, because earlier in that same century, you have the, I guess, ministry, you could say of Arius right, in Alexandria and throughout the surrounding areas in Egypt. And he was himself a somewhat prolific songwriter Hmm. for, obviously, for his own heretical cause. And it is a striking reminder of the way in which what we sing kind of sinks deeply into our hearts and informs and shapes what we believe and how we articulate what we believe. I would say this is a concern I have because sometimes when I will be preaching somewhere or even just participating in a service somewhere— I'll think this is um... well. Sometimes I'm. Sometimes the things that are being sung are wrong theologically, at best, imprecise, unbalanced, impoverished. That's not always the case. Obviously, I'm, u- I'm using a couple of extreme examples that are in my mind, but that has a significant influence on people's lives.
2: Yeah, it really does, and it forms. Expectations they have, the way they conceive God and his ways toward and in the world. In response to that question, when we were discussing it with Michael in the now fabled apocryphal section, Lost <laughs> to Us Forever. <laughs> yes. But his response was even again to point to his relationship with his pastor and academic mentor and friend, William Lane, who really got him started in music for the church by giving him his sermon notes and saying, Can you set, you know, set this to, use your gifts and set this to music where, so William Lane, who, so far as I know, was not himself a uh, musician or a writer of music, did take a proactive role by taking a a discipling role toward a young Michael Card and giving him solid content to work with early on so that his sermons were, in effect, being turned into three-minute distilled songs. I thought that was an impressive model that we don't, we often, you know, I think he brought up the fact that sometimes pastors feel like they are in conflict with the musically right. gifted right. Uh, and his encouragement to us was to really draw them in, bring them into what you're doing as a pastor yeah. and give them something good to work with.
0: Yeah. And of course it wouldn't always have to work itself out in the in a musician composing something new. I mean, sure. Michael Carr did that and that was appropriate for his congregational context, but it might just be the case that what you're trying to do is have a more detailed conversation with the people who are leading in music about which hymns are most appropriate sure and which ones really fit best with the teaching that the church is receiving from the pulpit
2: i did that as a pastor it takes a little extra work cuz you're going to have to you you're going to have to work through that you're going to have to know your hymnal or whatever source you're using yeah. well and you'll want to get the musicians on board with that right. and not feel like they're being completely pushed aside, but that there's a purposefulness and an organic integrity to the entirety of the service.
0: Yeah. And he made an observation at the end, which I thought was interesting because he travels all over and, and interacts with a lot of musicians. and And his observation was at this point, he felt as if almost the balance of power had shifted to the point where pastors in many churches are intimidated by even trying to have that conversation because maybe they don't understand the musical aspect of it as well and so his experience and again you know we're all just going on the information we have and the exposure we have but his experience was that actually pastors sure needed to listen to the musicians but at this point he thought maybe the musicians needed to listen to the pastors yeah. a little bit more.
2: Well, as someone who was a pastor and now a professor of theology, I can only agree. But, <laughs> right. Uh, right, 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 I'm, right, right. You, you heard I'm, me. I tried to carefully. <laughs> yes, I know. I don't want emails I'm, I'm from musicians. I'm biased.
0: Uh, because it can work the other way, too. And he actually admitted that. He said, listen, pastors need to learn from musicians as right. well. And he yes. would, he would say that, and he would be in a position to make that assessment. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you for your support, your continued support of Theology on the Go. Remember that all the Alliance podcasts and writings are supported by listeners like you. So if, if you can make a donation, you can do that at placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org. There are buttons to donate. And thank you again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.